Welcome to Stu's EV Universe, where you can find anything and everything electric vehicle. The great pleasure to welcome to the podcast Chris Payne, filmmaker, and uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm I'm imagining virtually everybody that listens to the podcast knows your work at Who Killed the Electric Car and Revenge of the Electric Car. Uh, but I guess to start out, could you uh, just kind of give us a like a little thumbnail of each film? Uh, sure. Well, you know, I started off. I came out of tech, and a friend of mine brought me in to produce a film about motorcycle racing called Faster. Yeah. And uh, Mark kind of goaded me into making this film, in a sense, um, into making Who Killed the Electric Car, because I hadn't done directing before that. And he said, well, you know the story, so you're the right person to do it. And our our plan on uh, Who Killed the Electric Car, of course, was to have a kind of this mock funeral for the electric car when they started getting recalled back in 2003 and we shot the footage thinking that we could provide it to one of the news shows of the time uh, nightline or 60 minutes or something like this and uh, they had all gotten burned by reporting on the firestone tire rollover story which was uh, basically SUVs were rolling over because they had some inadequate tires and they were top heavy and they'd a lot of uh, television programming had gotten burned in the subsequent quarter on television advertising for car companies. So I think the car companies had trained the television to be pretty careful about critiquing it if they wanted to hold on to their commercial revenue. And as a result, uh, we had all this footage that we had shot and we thought, well, what are we going to do with this? And our, our impression as early EV drivers, uh, I got my car in, I think, 98 or 99 and just had a terrific time with my first electric car, the GM EV1, supercar. And right. uh, But that most of my friends in the rest of the United States had never heard of the car, couldn't get the car, weren't very interested in the car, didn't know anything about it. And so we thought, well, let's, let's make, you know, a film that can really demonstrate our enthusiasm and why we had such a great time driving these cars before they got taken away from us. And that was the genesis of Who Killed the Electric Car. Somewhere in the edit, I began thinking that the movie Murder on the Orient Express would be a great template for right. uh, what happened to these cars. Why did Why did California agree to go along with these recalls? How did the oil companies play into the story? Uh, what about the batteries? what were the pros and cons of electric cars, you know, in uh, 2000. And uh, it turned out to be a, a pretty effective way of editing the story and telling a very complicated story about why a car company like General Motors and, frankly, Toyota, Nissan, Ford, everybody else, Honda, that had made electric cars, why they uh, decided to not just recall them, but in many cases destroy the vehicles so that they were no more electric cars on the road for a few years there. And that right. became uh, Who Killed the Electric Car. And then uh, after we made that film, uh, we began getting letters like, hey, you know, there are electric cars on the road. And at the very end of Who Killed the Electric Car, you guys had a company called Tesla with a prototype car. And, you know, aren't they doing something? And, you know, there's a future for electric cars. And I felt that as a 
filmmaker and a storyteller. I didn't want, just want to have like a movie that some people were calling a conspiracy movie. We didn't make Who Killed the Electric Car as a conspiracy movie. We made it as a you know, as a whodunit to try to sort out all the factors that went into these cars being destroyed. But it got marketed by Sony as a conspiracy movie, and we thought, oh, you know, there is more to life than this. So let's make a film about how, uh, you know, if, if it works out, uh, change happens from the inside. And when uh, I had met Elon Musk at SpaceX in the early days, because he was a fan of Who Killed the Electric Car, and I asked him if we could start filming the rollout of a Tesla Roadster, as he was working on it in those days, and he said, sure. So once we had uh, this startup company, Tesla, as part of our potential story, it was uh, a matter of time before we talked a couple of other car companies into being part of the story about the comeback of the electric car. We hoped a lot of car companies said no. Ford said no, even though Ford was uh, had some parts of their board of directors that was in favor of electric cars. They didn't want us anywhere near them. And we got a no from Toyota and... Hyundai, a bunch of a bunch of car companies said no, but luckily Bob Lutz was at GM and GM was going bankrupt uh, thanks to the uh, bad decisions they were making about you know buying brands like Hummer and putting all of their money into trucks when they they had a really terrific um, early edition electric vehicle, and Bob big bigger than life character said sure why don't you come in and he somehow convinced their board to let us film the development of the Volt and I think one of Bob's big um, big incentives was that he was really jealous of the Tesla Roadster, and he wanted to have a GM Roadster. You know, after all, Bob was involved in the design of the Corvette. He loved high-performance vehicles, uh, and he appreciated even uh, GM's EV1 for its super torquey performance. And he knew that GM could do an amazing electric vehicle, and why don't they do it? So he he thought it'd be fun to compete with Elon a little bit and who could make a better car out of the gate. I think I think Bob would have preferred that the Volt were a performance vehicle like the Roadster. But So once Bob let us in, we managed to talk our way into uh, the presence of Carlos Ghosn at Nissan. And of course, at this time, Carlos was still at the top of his game at Nissan, and he had, was putting billions of dollars into developing the LEAF and battery infrastructure and even recycling programs for those batteries. Um, and uh, so we flew to Japan, and on our own dime, because our producer was very anxious that we not get co-opted by car companies like a lot of automotive journalists seem to over time, and we kind of filmed the beginning and the rollout of the first uh, Nissan Leaf. So maybe that is a far longer answer than you were looking for, but that's that's some of the beginnings no, for those films. That's great. Yeah, and I really feel like, you know... <laughs> Your films really perfectly capture these moments in time, and and that's what you know something like this is is supposed to do. And, and you really nailed it. And um, I mean, because the EV has had stops and starts, you know, um, it hasn't been a smooth ride, and people get used to what they're used to, and to kind of break them out of that um, sometimes is like a Herculean effort. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, I, I see an EV as a car, a better car for a lot of reasons. But uh, for, you know, whatever reason, um, there seems to be a wall in front of 
a significant amount of the population, you know. So having these films out there, um, I mean, it's priceless. I mean, as far as telling the story and telling it in an honest way, which is which is great. Um, I guess just curious. I mean. You very casually say you know you, you, your first car was the EV1, and then you had a Tesla Roadster. Uh, those are dream cars. So I mean, how did that happen? How, how I mean, very few people got the the EV1. <laughs> Well, uh, and I'm I'm EV1 obsessed, so that's who you're talking to right now. Yeah. Well, it's fun to talk about the EV1, and it's interesting that even today, the some of the first uh, EV1 drivers are still super committed to electric transportation and how can we do this right next forward. So, uh, and I'm in touch with a lot of them. They, it's, it's, a, it's a really good group of people. Um, I, I got interested in the electric vehicle probably because I was born so long ago in the. Uh, Early '60s, and I remember that uh, the moon landings very carefully, you know, very, very specifically, and how they they drove an electric car on the moon. And my great uncle had an electric vehicle from the 1920s that he loved as kind of a collector's thing. And then I was a fan of an uh, engineer, Paul McCready, who had done a bicycle-powered aircraft across the English Channel when I was in the '70s. So. I knew that once electric cars, modern electric cars came on the road, I was going to be like first in line to get one. And I signed up for the GM beta program for the what they called the Impact, a misnamed <laughs> bad name for a car. And I didn't even get a reply back from GM. I, I definitely didn't qualify whatever they were looking for on the Impact. But when it came to market uh, in California two years later with a little bit of fanfare, I was definitely paying attention. And at the first chance I could go and lease one, actually, they had to drop the cost a little bit for me to afford it. Um, I went down and and jumped in the car for a test drive at the Saturn dealership, and I thought it would oh, it's going to be a great eco car. It's going to be electric. It'll be remind me of those old cars I've driven before, and it you know blew me right out of the saddle. I was just so impressed by that vehicle first drive. I went. I realized that this is going to be the next generation of cars. This will be. This right. will take over everything. But uh, <laughs> our enthusiasm for electric cars in 1998 and feeling like the 21st century had arrived was a, a little bit premature because we were up against, uh, and we still are, against a super uh, well-financed, capitalized gasoline car system that's difficult to get around. Yeah, and that brings up a, a very interesting point. I mean, one thing that has kind of been very curious to me is, lately is Toyota. Um, I mean, Toyota, they seem to kind of go against the whole idea of electric vehicles and, and I guess, in favor of hydrogen. Um, and from a car that with a Prius was considered to be the greenest car out there in its day. And they, they were sort of, you know, against it, against it, against it, until it seemed like all of a sudden they're making these big announcements, you know, um, which, you know, to me kind of seems a little suspect, you know. Maybe it's just been kind of following this kind of thing for so long. But, I mean, what do you make of something like that, you know? Well, such a good question. Uh, Toyota arguably had the most practical electric car out of the gate that RAV4 EV, which they basically took right. one of their RAV4 gas cars, as you know, and put an incredible battery system in it. 
um, because they had a relationship. I, I think those were Panasonic batteries in that car, as I recall, um, initially. I know they used Tesla batteries long, later on, but that, that car, uh, you know, a, after lots of us had to give our EV1s back or they were repossessed, uh, Toyota, sold, Toyota sold a few of their EV um, RAV4 vehicles, and we just loved them. They were so good and practical. But for some reason, and I think it's because they were having so much financial success with the Prius, and they figured, well, we're not going to convince everybody to drive electric cars. The Prius is making us a boatload of money now, not in the first years, but they began to really be a, a brand leader for them. And they made this decision that we'll stick with the Prius and hybrid drives, and the next phase will be we'll leapfrog batteries to hydrogen. And I've heard over the years, maybe you you have different stories, Stuart, but that uh, their inter- internal guy at Toyota who had developed um, the Prius was also a big hydrogen fan, and he, he just wasn't seeing battery electric as the way forward. So they, they put all their chips on hydrogen, which um, it just, you know, as our movie, even Who Killed the Electric Car, way back whenever we made it, uh, had sort of a basic understanding that hydrogen is uh, a, a fuel of the future, and it probably always will be, or at least for another 50 years. My, my dad said, and he went to Princeton in the 1950s, that uh, hydrogen was an up-and-coming fuel for cars <laughs> then, and it still has a worked out as economically viable and practical enough because of the challenges of hydrogen itself. And I think, uh, you know, our, our, our film really t- talked about that, the first film and the basics of it. So Toyota just went long on hydrogen, expensive and sort of always the car of the future. They made a few of them. They couldn't quite get enough fueling stations out there. And for some reason, they took a stand against batteries. And until very recently, I think, was it last week, Stuart, that they... Uh, Toyota finally uh, got out of the way of of American legislation and committed to starting to build batteries in mass and so forth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very frustrating. Toyota could have could have really helped move us along a lot faster than they did, but but hopefully now they're on the bandwagon. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, um, you know, it's interesting, and there seems to be a little bit of a parallel with, you know, kind of missed opportunities there with the first go-round with, with GM and all of that. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, kind of going, you know, to the back to the films a little bit, I, I'm always kind of curious, you know, as kind of, you know, insider kind of things, um, some favorite moments from each film uh, that kind of stick out to you as far as like an artistic kind of, oh, you know, we got that. And, you know, some of the things that you're perhaps most proud of, you know, in, in the films, uh, can you kind of think about, you know, throw your mind back and think about those things a little bit? Well, I think it's true for most filmmakers. Your, your proudest moment is when you finish them. Uh, it's, yeah. They're so hard to make. They take forever. They cost so much money. Um, it's so hard to get all the pieces in place. It's just like a, a marathon to get to the end. In fact, when I watch movies that I, even when I movies I don't like very much, I, I always have sort of an appreciation for all the suffering that went into making them. Uh, right. or, you know, I don't mean real suffering, but I mean like endless work that you, you wonder if you're ever going to get there. And I, you know, I haven't seen Who Killed the Electric Car in a while, um, so I. I can't think of any specific moments. It was great to have Chelsea. You know, she was such a bonanza. She, didn't she talk on your show? She sure did. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. And finding yeah. Chelsea was so good for us because, A, it meant I didn't have to be in the movie. Um, 
I think I have one small scene, but I'm right. not really partial to the, you know, guy in the movie type films usually. And uh, Chelsea's so charismatic, and she was, you know, there when it all started. And so I think sort of meeting Chelsea, and then uh, in terms of making the film, you know, our big break in terms of like the surprise moment we never expected to get was around Christmas. Uh, I can't remember, 2005 was it? And we got a tip that they may be, uh, they actually may be crushing these brand new cars out in the, in Arizona somewhere. And one of these, uh, one of EV friends of ours who had a lot of money and an airplane flew us to Mesa, Arizona on the 24th of December or something. And we managed, we rented a helicopter and flew over the GM proving grounds where indeed there was, you know, these, well, maybe 60 or 150 electric, uh, EV1s being destroyed. And it was a really sad moment on one level, but as a filmmaker, I went, oh, my God, we, you know, we have the end of our second act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is... Uh, and before drones, you know. <laughs> and before drones. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because we had a problem with the gyro... Uh, Gyrocam video camera that we had because it was right. interfering with the helicopter's uh, gyrosphere, not interfering in terms of we're about to crash, but that the camera had just like incredible wobble that we couldn't get out of it. And thank goodness we had a still photographer with us, uh, Ken, who is also our, our sponsor for that shoot. And he, he shot with his uh, telephoto lens off of a 35 millimeter camera. And those were the, the photos we ended up using in the, in the, in the film. Now, um, you know, I guess with e Elon Musk, you know, I mean, he's come a long way with, with Tesla. It's insane. And, and Bob Lutz, I mean, you have two very different people. Uh, I'm kind of curious about, you know, how you think, you know, maybe they have things in common as far as the two of them, distinct differences. I mean, it was just very entertaining to watch them, um, you know, and, and you kind of see Elon through the years. I mean, amazing, like insane hard worker has achieved insane things. And, you know, you have all this doubt in the beginning and rightly so, you know, that he's not going to do this. Nobody does this, you know, and then he does it. And I mean, that's why uh, to a large degree, these car companies are are making these big investments now is because uh, they have to, you know? Um, so I'm just kind of curious as far as personalities, you know, what they were like, you know, they seem very larger than life. Yeah, Elon and Bob are, are both larger than life. And they, they were when we were making uh, Revenge of the Electric Car and they still are now. I, actually, I haven't seen B Bob in a while, but, um, you know, Bob Lutz had had such a career in the auto industry and, when we got him to go on camera with us, he didn't trust us a bit because we were those troublesome filmmakers from Who Killed the Electric Car. Uh, but he, he, he uh, I think he understood that we weren't out to get him or, you know, get GM or something. We wanted to tell the story of, of what it takes to make a car at a big car company. And Bob began to really open up and uh, be magnanimous with us and he invited us to his, you know, country estate with his uh, segways that he's riding there and his like uh, imperial geese and all the things on that property is antique cars. And, you know, Bob in a sense is like a, a great salesman. I mean, he's a good designer and so forth. He's, but he's a big grand salesman. And Elon 
in addition to being a genius engineer, he's also a salesman. You know, he has to sell the markets that he's going to do what he has to do. He has to sell customers on his product. So they're both, for all their you know personality quirks and so forth, are are excellent storytellers and salesmen. And uh, Bob's got a, a natural charisma about him, as as you can you can see watching our film or any interview with them. And you know, Bob. Uh, excuse me, and, and Elon is, uh, I don't need to really say too much about him. We all know him so well from the media now, but he's hes a, a more curious person. You have to kind of find him in a sense and decide if you're like, <laughs> what your feelings are about him. If we want to like, you know, ride the car with him for, uh, I found Elon is, you know, and I, I still do just incredibly fascinating person. And I hope he's part of our next film as well. He he got involved in our, our film about artificial intelligence. And one thing that Elon does better than anyone is handle stress. And the stress uh, that he was under when we were making our film and not throwing us out of a number of situations where I think any one of his attorneys or managers would have wanted to have us get the hell out of here. Uh, he just persevered and trusted that that we were we were there to tell a story, not to you know ambush him or something. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean I remember that one point where um, he was talking about a car, and and there were just all these problems, and it just you could feel the weight on him, you know. And then I think it was your car that he you were like, this is my car. <laughs> and uh, I think he complimented the color uh, or the color scheme on the car, if, I, if I'm correct with that. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, after, you know, Dean Devlin uh, financed Who Killed the Electric Car, and after we finished that film, Dean said, you know, this film didn't cost you any money to make. Um, I think that we should both put our money where our mouth is and put a put a deposit down on a Tesla Roadster. And I'm like, well, I've never, you know, the only car I've ever bought is an EV1, I mean, new, and that was a, just a leasing. And he goes, right. well, uh, are we, do we want Tesla to succeed or not? It's, and so somehow Dean badgered me into buying a sports car, a Roadster, which I have almost no use for in the way I, my sort of lifestyle runs. But it was like the greatest investment we ever made because it, I think it, A, it, it sort of cemented the trust that Elon and Tesla had in us, that we were actually true believers and we wanted to go along for the ride. Uh, but ironically, it created this incredible tension because I thought we may never get our car. And they, they were so delayed. They had so many problems getting those roadsters to onto the road. You know, And, of course, it wasn't just Elon in those days. It was Martin and everybody else was involved at Tesla. And they had some serious challenges with Lotus on the other side. And so... While we were making that movie, I kept thinking, geez, am I going to run into my car one day in one of these things? And sure enough, there it was in that shoot on that, the day for revenge. And I just had to call Elon out on my vehicle since it was a, a, a year late. And Dean had an expression. He, Dean Devlin uh, used to say, well, Chris, you know, if Tesla goes bankrupt, this car will probably be worth something in a United Arab Emirates Museum one day, so you'll never totally lose your money on it. And if Tesla's successful, then you'll have an early edition vehicle in your garage that you can sell to a collector one day. So Dean turned out to be right on that. Yeah, that's great. And actually, I think you just uh, kind of hinted at one of the, my, my upcoming questions is, uh, is it a trilogy? You know, is uh, is there another film coming that 
Yeah. I mean, how could you not want to make one more <laughs> film about electric cars? It, this never happens as an environmentalist where, like, there's such a stunning success. I mean, sure, the Pelicans came back after DDT, and there have been some environmental successes over the years, but it's rare to work on an issue, topic, topical film, and have things reverse so astonishingly that they have on the electric car. And we want to do one more car. It's it's always a challenge of getting financing for them. Um, the Each of the first two films ended up costing me more money than it, than it made us. But you, you, you tell the people that put money into these films that, you know, you could be influencing the zeitgeist and this is something that is you know, ultimately kind of a piece of artwork for the future and for the present. So if we find the right, the right team to make that film, um, we, we've been shooting, you know, on and off over the last few years to, to have some, maybe some key scenes in that film once we get it launched. Um, and, and hopefully we do. Are you able to kind of hint at uh, what the focus would be or uh, some of the, you know, the thoughts at this point? And well, I think the big focus for everybody that really pays attention to this, beyond the cars, which are fascinating, and there's so much going on with Rivian and all the players, Tesla's going, uh, you know, growth and the explosion of this is, is can we do this without destroying the earth in the process? And uh, batteries aren't are at the heart of 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 the story, and how do, how are we going to get these batteries made? And is it all depend on cobalt? And, um, and of course, it, obviously, it does not depend on cobalt. But can you can you make these in scale, not just for for cars, but for the grid and everything else? So, I think uh, the, the the movie will have a, a lot of things to say. But one of the essential questions that we're that we're after in it is, can we do batteries? sustainably. Right. And, and is there any sort of timeline or is it way too early to, to be thinking about that? You never know. I mean, our films usually take about five years. Uh, and I'd say we're, you know, a couple of years in on this project um, in terms of from financing to shooting the stuff you want to putting together an edit to getting it released. So it's always a long time frame. But, you know, something you said earlier in our in your podcast which is sort of true. It's like when, no matter when we make this film, it will be a great timestamp for that moment in the story. And I would have thought this, this film uh, was going to come out maybe two years ago at one point. I thought, Oh, this, but the timing, you know, every, every year we wait, there's more to the story. There's more angles and there's more, um, what's the future really going to be about? Yeah. That really brings up like the whole idea of, the evolution of a film and how it evolves. I mean, because uh, I always wonder, oh, is this something that, you know, the filmmaker goes in and they say, well, this is what we're going to make a film about. And then they make the film about that. Um, but I think the reality is there might be some of that. You know, there is that initial seed of an idea, you know, and, and what you're thinking, the way you're thinking it's going to go. But then um, things happen. You know, and um, time goes on and some things happen that you expect. I assume some things happen that you don't expect. Yeah. And I mean, uh, just in a very, you know, kind of very small way, our group here, Evolve KY, we made a, uh, a very grassroots documentary uh, called Evolve Driving a Clean Future in Coal Country, uh, I would say a few years ago, three, four years ago. And uh, an hour-long, you know, documentary, and we crowdsourced it through Indiegogo. You know, it was a real kind of homegrown kind of thing, and highlighted not only the EV chapter that I, I co-founded here, Evolve KY, 
in our efforts. I mean, we thought that was going to be it. And the filmmaker that we got here, uh, Ben Evans in Louisville, um, I think our first lunch, he said, oh, yeah, you know, maybe it'd be five, ten minutes, you know. And I was thinking, oh, you know, five, ten minutes. It went from that to uh, a lot longer than we thought it was going to be, a lot more expensive <laughs> than we thought it was going to be. And it brought in a lot more content, you know, uh, a lot more stories of the green efforts going on here in Kentucky that we thought it was going to be. And I remember at one point hearing about like a a new battery um, battery company that was going to, it was big news, was going to be uh, built on a abandoned coal mine. And I told Ben about it. And I was kicking myself that I told him about it because we were already behind. And he's like, that's great. I have to find these people. <laughs> I have to talk to them. You know, and we, and we got some great stuff. You know, I mean, that company ended up going belly up and there's a big story with that. But that too, you know, not everything, you know, it's not static. Life isn't static. So I, 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 and I get what you're saying as far as the film being completed, being an amazing thing, because hopefully at the end you have something you could be proud of and I, and you should be very proud of, of the work that you've done. Um, but also the fact that like, you know, it's done and, uh, it just, I think the people watching don't, really have an idea of of it's like i would imagine you know giving birth you know it's it's such a a thing you know it takes a lot out of you well it the the interesting thing is as someone that practices in the craft as as uh, as, as you guys learned is that the market treats filmmaking as a commodity it's like oh what are the 500 shows i have to choose between today or even the 30 and right. you know they do you see a scene and it, oh, it looks like crappy lighting because if it's like a car driving, um, people are used to seeing cars in you know shows that are million dollar commercials on the football, right? So it's very, quite expensive to make really pretty images, oftentimes, not always, but and then people take it for granted. So as a filmmaker, you you have to be patient and try not to to you know, try not to despair with all that and just say, well, there's going to be an audience for this one day. I'm going to make, try to make the film I want to make. And then for the other thing you were saying, it's, it's a bit of a Frankenstein. It, it, you have, if it's a documentary, you need to improvise and be ready for the story to take off in any direction. Uh, the who killed the electric car. We wanted to do it as a comedy. Uh, you know, why would rich people have a, uh, you know, in L.A., have a funeral for their car and use it as a way to tell the story. And, you know, it turned into like, my God, we've got a, a smoking gun here on these on these cars being destroyed. So letting go of what you want to do is is part of the of the, of the trick to it. And I, I think in our case, it's why we sort of take our time to do them, because we we don't want to feel like incredible pressure to crank something out that isn't really what what maybe is the best use of our time. Yeah, yeah. And and I know uh, I saw another film, uh, Bikes Versus Cars, that you were invo involved with. And I was very impressed with that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Uh, I love bicycles. It's a, you know, they, they were invented about the same time as automobiles, as you know. And uh, I wanted to do a film about bicycle culture and bicycles around the world. And I met Frederick Gerton, who did a terrific documentary uh, called Big Boys Go Bananas about the Dole uh, Food Company 
I'll just leave it there. It's a really great film. So Frederick was doing a film called Bikes Versus Cars, and he told me what he was up to, and I thought, you know, I'll just climb aboard his project. And uh, I loved his premise of going to four cities and looking at what the power relationships between bicycles and cars were on roads. Like, who owns the roads? And obviously cars own the roads, but there's a growing push for bicycles to own. If we want people on bicycles, and we do, how do you do that? And how do you get your share of the roads back? Not just for bicycles, but for pedestrians and every other kind of vehicle. So um, that's how I got involved. He, we, we shot in four cities, in, uh, in Copenhagen, in Buenos Aires, in uh, Toronto, where at the time they had this crazy mayor that was actually painting over bicycle lanes. So he, he made a, it was a great, you know, sort of comedy villain for us in that film. And then Los Angeles, which is, you know, famously the home of freeways and cars and there's no room for bicycles at all. And uh, that's where Bikes versus Cars came from. Yeah, I was just really impressed with it. And it's interesting, you know, people think of cars as transportation. And, uh, you know, there's this long history that it wasn't always that way, you know. And uh, it's just really, and and also with the pandemic, you know, I think bike sales went through the roof. You know, people were having a hard time finding bikes. So there, there was kind of going back a little bit. It, I mean, you live in Kentucky uh, and on the East Coast. I mean, California is different because it was, you know, industrialized so late. But most roads are set up, as you're referring to, for horses and other kinds of vehicles, which is why you have a lot of roads that are too narrow for the vehicles and all the rest of it. And there was a great tension when cars hit the road and horse owners were like, you can't have your car go over this bridge, you know, you're going to scare the horses. And they said, no, no, don't be so afraid of cars. It's just, you know, after all, cars use horsepower to drive and, you know, everybody tried to make it very friendly. And in the same way, now bicycles and other kinds of transportation are, are trying to, like, get a piece of road for themselves. And there's just incredible resistance on the other side, um, even though. Uh, and I, th- I think this is really true. It's, you know, disruptive technologies or, or new ways of thinking come right up against the old ways of thinking and the old ways of making money. And it's always going to be a, it's always going to be a challenge. No, absolutely. That's absolutely it. And, uh, I, I, this has been great. I mean, I'm wondering if you have anything else that you want to add before we, uh, kind of wrap up. Sure. Well, uh, I'll say, you know, one example of, uh, the, our film, a film changing, uh, deadlines, like on your Kentucky coal film was, was on, on our AI film, when we read about Cambridge Analytica and we realized that uh, the story was just brand new and we were almost done with the film and we realized that we had to like include the story as our third act and that delayed our film um, you know, by maybe six months to get that story in. But I think we were the first film to cover how uh, Facebook was used. Um, you know, maybe we didn't get into the machinations of the behind the scenes there, but at least how that influenced the election at the last time, largely using machine learning algorithms uh, to, you know, prey on people that were, to to prey on all of us that can't make the kinds of decisions that that, uh, machine learning can make when you deploy it as a piece of advertising or, or political propaganda. So, yeah, as a filmmaker, you never know where you're going. Yeah. 
But yeah, thank you for this podcast. And yeah. well, we look forward to getting another uh, electric car film out. You know, I made an, another film about uh, years ago about electric motorcycle racing, charged with uh, Mark Neal that did that first um, mm. uh, motorcycle racing movie about uh, Moto GP. And I, I think that uh, electric transportation is always going to be part of my my filmmaking future. It's it's such a great story, and there's so many great people involved in it. No, you're absolutely right. I saw that one as well. It was great. So, um, yeah, and that's what I find fascinating is is the personalities and and it just kind of you know brings it all to life. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is, is there a place online or um, wherever that you can you know kind of direct people to? I know I, I believe I purchased your films through Apple. Uh, there are so many places to uh, purchase and rent and do all these things, and but I mean just to find out more about your work. Well, I think you know most of the, most of the works you can find free on YouTube. Uh, that's just the way the whole market's gone. But uh, they also through pay corridors without commercials and much better fidelity through Amazon and Apple and um, uh, you know sometimes on HBO these things come through there. And if you want to go to uh, our simple site for our production company, it's uh, papercutfilms.com, and we have a list of most of our projects on that. Great, great. Super appreciated. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stu's EV Universe. I would like to thank Eden Unger for creating the artwork and the music for this episode. Remember, please rate, review, subscribe, and share, as that's the only way we can continue to grow. Now you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash EVU. Remember, the EV revolution runs on your energy. I'm Stuart Unger. See you next time.